This week on Daybreak. You know, he understood America. He said to be such an open and welcoming country. And he said it was kind of shocking and saddening that it would turn its back and shut its door on all these students from all these countries. There became a point at around 1971 where there were only three eating clubs that were bigger and still all male. To do otherwise would only diminish America's role as a leader of the democratic world. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Didici. You're listening to Daybreak. This is a show in which we'll explore the week's top stories, both on campus and around the world. Nearly three weeks ago, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Immigrations, and Customs Enforcement announced that international students with a fully virtual course load would not have valid visas for the fall. A week later, they rolled back this policy after a widespread backlash, including a lawsuit from Harvard and MIT, with support from Princeton and hundreds of other universities. Now, it seems like that policy is back, for some. Here to tell us about this latest change is Sandeep Mangat, who reported on the policy for the Prince. Sandeep, what is this latest change, and what does it mean for Princetonians? So, ICE just announced yesterday that incoming first years attending uh, institutions where it's fully online in the fall won't be able to enter the United States, and uh, it's still unclear what that means for Princeton, since... We're not sure which courses will be in-person or virtual. And that's the crux of uh, this whole policy. So do we have any idea what sort of action the university might be taking um, with regard to this new policy? It's unclear now. Uh, The university did issue a statement where they pretty much said that they stand with international students and are thinking about this given international students provide such an important part of the university community but it's unclear what specific course of action they'll take. So just to clarify, is this policy for first years at institutions that are solely online or first years at any institution who are taking only online classes? Um, First years are only taking online classes. Interesting. So it might apply to some first years here, but it might not. So Princeton first years usually choose their courses the week before school. How is that going to work with this policy? Is that clear? Not yet. Um, Michael Hotchkiss, one of the university spokespeople, said that most classes will be virtual in the fall, and there might be some in person, but that depends on course enrollment and which rooms meet public health and safety guidelines. So if most courses are virtual, then I think most first years will be equally affected by this policy. That's dramatic. So incoming first years who under this policy would not be able to join their classmates on campus this fall. How do they feel about this? Um, So I did talk to an incoming first year from Nepal and he was devastated. Uh, Something he told me was uh, just the fact that, you know, he understood America. He said to be such an open and welcoming country. And he said it was kind of shocking and saddening that it would turn its back and shut its door on all these students from all these countries. I did ask him about what his plans were and if this changes anything for him. He said, of course, mentally things are different now and it'll be difficult for him to go through this academic year from Nepal, Um, but that there's so much financial pressure and family pressure on him to get a job as soon as he finishes college that he won't be able to take a year off.
In the U.S., a federal moratorium on evictions set to help renters through the pandemic expired on Friday, which estimates say could put roughly 12 million Americans at risk of losing their home. At the same time, stimulus talks stalled as Republicans in the Senate and White House disagreed on allocation of funds, including a possible extension of currently boosted unemployment benefits. GOP lawmakers will now wait until at least Monday before presenting an initial stimulus proposal to their Democrat colleagues. Last Tuesday, a full-page ad appeared in the Washington Post. It included the names of over 400 Princeton University community members, putting their support behind noted journalist and 2018 Time Person of the Year Maria Ressa, class of 86, who was found guilty of cyber libel in the Philippines over a month ago. Albert Jong reported on the ad for the Prince and joins us today. So Maria Ressa is the founder and CEO of Rappler, which is an online news site that she founded in um, 2012, and which has quickly grown into one of the largest news organizations in the Philippines. And in her and her organization's coverage of Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte, they have been critical of his um, extrajudicial killings and especially his infamous war on drugs. And since then, she has seen countless governmental investigations and cases. Notably, last month on June 15th, a a verdict was handed down that convicted her of cyber libel, which was a decision that basically fined her $8,000 and could see her in prison for up to six years. So there was this big ad in the Washington Post earlier this week uh, in support of her. What was in this ad and who signed it? Yeah, so this ad basically said that they stood behind Ressa and her news organization's promotion on pursuit of objective reporting. Among these 400 alumni included um, George Schultz, who was the Secretary of State under the Reagan administration, John Bellinger, the legal advisor to the Department of State and National Security Council, and Marie Slaughter, the director of policy planning under Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, as well as uh, two sitting members of Congress and three former members of Congress as well. So there are some big names in support of her, and since she's been charged and recently found guilty, this has been fairly common. There's been some good support for Ressa in America. What sort of impact has that had on her situation in the Philippines? Yeah, so currently um, her cyber libel case is actually pending appeal. But since then, well, this this full page ad that was taken out in the Washington Post actually joins several other statements of solidarity from organizations in the United States and across the country, including the Congressional Freedom of the Press Caucus, the National Union of Journalists of the Philippines, Princeton University itself, the Daily Princetonian Editorial Board, the Princeton Filipino Community, and actually a letter that was signed uh, last year by students and alumni. Um, But more specifically, this current uh, letter that was published in the Washington Post kind of urges the U.S. government to quote-unquote use its influence to convince the Philippine government to drop all charges against RESA. More specifically, the letter states that that presidents throughout the history of the United States have kind of used their leverage against authoritarian governments that violate the rights of U.S. citizens abroad. And it's important to note that Ressa is actually a dual American and Philippine citizen. Um, And the letter continues um, urging the current administration 
to do the same, um, saying, quote, to do otherwise would only diminish America's role as a leader of the democratic world. The U.S. Department of Justice Inspector General has opened a probe into the actions of federal agents against Black Lives Matter protests in Washington, D.C. and Portland. In the latter, for over a week now, unmarked forces have been filmed taking protesters away in unmarked vehicles. Many of these videos have been widely circulated on social media, leading to outcry from many across the country. The DOJ probe comes after Trump sent hundreds of federal agents to several other cities across the United States. While Princeton continues to adjust its fall semester, this week announcing various cancellations of courses along with a few additions and some courses that will be pre-recorded, the Northeast has seen remarkably few cases in recent weeks as compared to spikes throughout much of the rest of the nation. Internationally, daily case rates are high in much of South America and in South Africa and Oman. We close this week's episode with a bit of a retrospective. Thirty years ago this month, the New Jersey Supreme Court ruled that the last holdouts of the previously all-male eating clubs had to allow women to bicker. The Prince recently looked back on that era in a comprehensive feature piece, How the Eating Clubs Went Co-Ed. Here to discuss that piece are the authors, Assistant Features Editor Alex Jaya and Assistant News Editor Evelyn Doskoch. So to start, Alex, how did Princeton and the street get to where they were in 1990 when this ruling came down from the state courts? So it's a really interesting progression. Originally, when the campus went co-ed, a lot of the eating clubs went co-ed right away. So sign-in clubs went co-ed because they didn't have the selective interview process. They really had no reason to not go co-ed. A few of them were actually campus club was already co-ed even before the campus went co-ed because of grad students and just visiting students and stuff. And then um, several of the bigger clubs went co-ed at the same time. So there became a point at around 1971 where there were only three eating clubs that were bigger and still all male. So that was TI, Cottage Club, and Ivy Club. So there became this sort of twofold progression of Sally Frank coming to campus she registered as a man and tried to bicker and got bicker appointments at all three clubs. Um, and but of course, because they were all male, she did not get a slot um, and she did not become a member at any of those clubs. And that was in um, 77 or 78. And then her junior year, she registered again and only got an appointment at Ivy because they were familiar with her name. But at that point, she had decided to file a lawsuit. So there's one progression that's a legal progression, um, and there's this thread of suits, countersuits that kind of go all the way to first 86 when Cottage decides to go co-ed, and then into this 1990 court decision. Um, and then at the same time, there's a w movement on campus where you start to see a social shift. So all of these female activists, they get men to, um, they even get faculty to come out to these marches, particularly towards the late 80s, things were ramping up. So there's this interesting dual progression that Evelyn and I were able to really follow throughout this piece of the social movement to the 90s 
and then the legal movement, which is what culminated in this 1990 court case. So Evelyn, what changed after these clubs were forced to admit women? How did the dynamics play out on the street in the following years? Well, one thing that we were really struck by when we did this, this research was that as soon as change came, it was there for good and it was a really immediate shift. We talked to a lot of women who said that um, they felt that the bicker process was very pleasant. It was a positive experience and that that positive experience continued through to when they became members of the clubs. So even though there was this monumental shift in dynamics um, on Princeton's campus, it was really striking how women almost immediately felt accepted in the clubs that they bickered into, the previously all-male clubs. They felt at home and they felt that it was really positive and helped them grow into the people that they are today as adults. Were there any personal stories about this change that stuck out to you? Alex, let's start with you. I think there were lots of funny anecdotes about female TI members joining in wrestling matches or like Ivy Club members um, designing a scarf because they had always had ties before. Um, But I think what really struck Evelyn and I was there was a quote from one of the activists, Jennifer Weiner, who said that the goal was to let Ivy attract the kind of Princetonians, not just Princeton men, but Princetonians that Ivy always attract, to let TI attract the Princetonians, to let Cottage attract the Princetonians. So there was a sense of from the women that they had the personality that would really fit in at these clubs and they ended up having a great time because they were the Princetonians who belonged in these clubs. They just hadn't had these opportunities before. I was also very struck by stories of the Take Back the Night March that occurred um, in the late 80s, several years in a row. Um, we, we learned through our interviews that these marches captured hundreds of students' attention on campus. They were incredibly influential and, and lasting memories for these students, and they directly impacted change because it was only a few years later that um, Ivy Club and Tiger Inn were forced to accept women. Um, and it was this really impressive display of activism that would help turn the tide. You can read more about that pivotal moment in Princeton history at DailyPrincetonian.com. That's all for Daybreak this week. Be sure to tune in again next Sunday for the latest in Princeton news and an overview of the week's events on Daybreak, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on DailyPrincetonian.com. Our show is produced under the 144th Managing Board of the Prince, and our theme was composed and performed by Ed Horan, Class of 22. For The Daily Princetonian, I'm Mark Didici. Have a wonderful week.